Hey friends, Andy Jenkins here, bringing you another bonus episode all about soul wholeness, emotional health, all in an effort to really help you explore the idea of the five-week Freedom March Intensive. That's the group coaching program that is releasing and starting up. First round is starting November the 22nd. The links to all of that information is in the show notes where you can take a deeper dive. Today, I want to talk to you about one of the big issues that we highlight in that program. I'm going to take you to the audio from video number eight of the Soul Wholeness video course, uh, for on which this entire program is based, uh, that and the book that I wrote back in the spring. Um, this one is all about guilt and shame. And at the end of the previous episode, I, I said I really believe that this may be a bigger issue culturally than the post-traumatic stress, than post-traumatic stress disorder, than triggers and overcoming trauma of past pain. Uh, this is one that I really believe when you see stats like 22 veterans per day uh, succumb to suicide, I, I, I really believe that most of that is based on guilt and shame, uh, often referred to as moral injury, uh, more so than PTSD. Guilt and shame is a response to an internal threat, to something that we feel this weight that we're carrying inside of ourselves. PTSD triggers our reactions to external things, to stuff that is going on outside or that has happened in the past outside. PTSD, it creates this fight or flight mechanism. You either bow up against it or you run away from it and hide. Maybe you have experienced that, and depending on the situation, you might respond in either one of those ways. Guilt and shame, it's different because you can't fight against it. You can't flight away from it. You've heard the saying, wherever you go, there you are. And so let me roll right into it. Again, I believe that this is a bigger issue than post-traumatic stress. And so I would love to get your thoughts. If you have a comment on it, feel free to reach out. My contact information is in the show notes. It's on the contact page on the website. I'm going to roll into it. I'll be back at the end of this video's audio and give you some more thoughts about the Freedom March as well as thoughts on the content that you're about to listen to. In the previous two videos, we talked about what it means to get triggered, and that led us into the conversation about post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. The difference between those being post-traumatic stress disorder means it's diagnosed. Post-traumatic stress is just the experience that so many people have. And what we've said is you don't have to be diagnosable to struggle. In fact, most of us aren't diagnosable yet we would benefit from easing up the struggle a bit in this area. That was the first type of soul wound we discussed. This type of soul wound is dealing with that nasty tango of guilt and shame. Here's the first point. Moral injury occurs when we violate our code of morality, that is, of right and wrong, and the result of injuring your moral compass is guilt and shame. Here's, here's an overview of what that means. C.S. Lewis, he likened it to this. Now, C.S. Lewis is the guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and all of those books. He's the man that wrote the book, The Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity. And he said that there is this moral code that human beings seem to have. If you go across all cultures, 
in all time spans, all people, everybody seems to agree that murder is wrong. Everybody agrees that men should honor women and children and that the elderly should be revered. Everybody agrees that rape and sexual assault are a no-no and should be punished. In fact, he would say that all of these things are so obvious because people that do them always excuse them and rationalize why the deviation occurs. So there's this moral code. Now, moral injury occurs when we violate that compass of right and wrong. It can happen in multiple ways. It can happen when we commit an action and we actually do something that we should not do. Uh, it can occur when we omit a good that we should have done. In fact, there's a Bible verse on that. James says, the one who knows to do good and doesn't, that's sin. And when we don't do something that we feel we should do, often it creates as big of an issue. Here's the other side of this. This can actually occur and we can carry a sense of wrong or blame for things that are done to us, even if we're not in the wrong, as is the case with abuse or assault. We can also carry the blame uh, or a sense of guilt for things that we had to do for a greater good, as is the case with soldiers that must take life to save life or a police officer that must take life to protect other lives. So it's unavoidable or uh, it's something that had to occur um, that was out of our normal character um, that we did. So this one can be totally tricky to walk into and really understand, as was the case with post-traumatic stress, because when we're dealing with soul wounds, it's not diagnosing like whether the arm's broken or not. It's something that is uniquely different to all of us. You might have seen this whole moral injury thing illustrated on Saturday morning cartoons. Back when I was a kid, Saturday morning cartoons are horrible now, in my opinion. But when I was little and they had uh, Bugs Bunny and Wile E. Coyote and Looney Tunes and they had uh, actual cartoons for several hours, it seems like every Saturday morning you would see this pop up. On one side there would be an angel that was trying to tell the cartoon character to do right. And on the other side, there was a devil uh, trying to tell the cartoon character to do wrong. <laughs> and, and this is really what happens with our moral compass. We have a sense that we should go one direction and often we end up going in the other direction. And again, the wrong could be something that's unavoidable. Um, it could be something that was for the greater good. It could be something that was done to you. Regardless of the case, Here's what occurs with moral injury. is The cause is that your core beliefs are violated in some way. That, again, could be complex. And the consequence is that you start having these negative feelings, guilt and shame. You, you might not even feel worthy of being human. So it's guilt and shame resulting in a conscience that's violated and feelings of unworthiness. A lot of times people ask, what's the difference between guilt and shame or how are they connected? Here's a great way to understand them. Guilt is based on something that you did. It could be something that you do that you regularly do, as, as is the case if you were addicted to something or it was an ongoing behavior. Uh, it could be something that is out of character for you. A lot of the soldiers that I've worked with um, have had to fire a gun in the line of duty um, that caused a fatality. Uh, 
normally walking around and shooting people is not something that they do. It is out of character for them. Um, and it was, as this next part of the definition says, it's based on circumstances. So guilt, it's an action that I did. Um, again, it doesn't have to be an ongoing behavior. It could be something that's out of character. It could be something based on circumstance. Shame is not an action. Shame is identity. Um, guilt says I did something. Shame says I am something. It is who you are. It's different than doing a bad thing. It denotes that you're a bad person, perhaps in your opinion. And you might not even be valued as being human. Here's, here's a great way to understand the difference between moral injury and PTSD as well. PTSD that we discussed in the two previous videos, it elicits a fight or flight response. Something happens that's outside of you. It is a response to an external threat. With post-traumatic stress, you're reacting to gunfire you're reacting to mortar rounds, you're reacting to what's happening in the camel driver's tent, you're reacting to the abusive person, you're at, reacting to the perpetrator that is out there. It is outside of you. With moral injury, it is all inside of you. It is uh, overwhelmingly internal and you can't run away from it because you know the saying, wherever you go, there you are. So these are two different types of soul wounds. Now, you may encounter both of them, or you may encounter one or the other, but they've got to be treated based on what they are, not based on just lumping them all together. Here's what's interesting is the uncommon cure for moral injury, uh, for guilt and shame, actually happens to be, and I, and I say uncommon because it's shared not enough, is mature love. Um, let me explain. A couple months ago, I read this, that the surface of the earth, proportional to its size of the earth, is smoother than an eight ball. Here's what that means. C comparing our highs to our lows, it's like comparing the top of Mount Everest to the valleys in the Sahara and looking at them from the moon. They're virtually indistinguishable. So often we view sin like this. And again, sin could be something that you did. It could be something that you didn't do that you should have done. It could also be something for which you bear no guilt. Something was done to you. You can still carry guilt and shame. You shouldn't carry guilt for that. But so often the fact that we shouldn't feel guilty doesn't mean that we don't feel guilty. We so often view sin like this. Some are high, some are really low, some are in the middle. But the reality is this, from the view of redemption from overhead, it's all proportionally the same. A few years ago, I met with a friend, one-on-one. -on -one. We both had small kids, and so what we'd do is once a week in the evening, uh, after the kids went to bed, about 8.30, he and I would get out of the house, we'd drive to the nearby coffee shop, we'd sit, order something, chat. Usually they would close about 9, 9.30, we would walk outside, sit on their porch if the weather was nice, talk for a little bit, and just kind of hang out. Um, it, it was kind of just private, you know, not being a worker, laborer, not <laughs> being a parent, uh, just, you know, guy, guy time. And one night we're out there and he says, hey, I've got something I've got to tell you, I need to get off my chest. And it was really nervous about it. And I, I, I told him, it's like, well, well, yeah, I mean, go ahead and tell me. He said, no, like, nobody knows this. Like, my wife doesn't know this. I've been carrying it for years. Like, I feel like I've got to tell somebody, though. I've got to, I've got to get the skeleton out of the closet, is, is the term he used. 
And I said, all right, well, yeah, I mean, share, what is it? He, he proceeded slowly and nervously to tell me this thing that he had done. And, and it wasn't like this little trite thing, but, but I remember like the, the, the guilt and the shame he carried far outweighed and exceeded the wrong that he had done. And I remember looking at him and saying, man, is, like, is, that, is that all? Is, you've, you've been carrying that? That's it? And he said, yeah. He goes, but when it was in the closet, like that skeleton seemed so much scarier. And it was almost like the longer he stayed there, the bigger and more scary he was getting. And when I opened the door, th these are his words, not mine. When I opened the door, it's like the skeleton just fell out. And I realized like he doesn't have any muscle. He doesn't have any ligaments or tendons. There's no life or breath or skin or voice in him. It's just bones. And I thought about it. And in that moment, when he said those words to me, he instantly felt free. See, there's this verse in the New Testament at the end, James 5.16 says, confess your stuff to one another so that you may be healed. And notice it's not just confess to God. We, we do that when we kind of come into the Christian life, right? Confess Jesus as Lord. So Romans 10 says you'll be saved. But the confession at that point, it's to one another so that other people can walk with us and hey, I'm sorry this happened to you. Or, hey, that wrong you did, it's okay, you're forgiven, let's move forward. And that really leads me to this. 1 John 4.18 is this verse that really, I try to implement in what I'm teaching, in parenting, in marriage, in, in life, anywhere that I get the opportunity to speak on a stage. It's really kind of, even if I don't say this verse, kind of just the, the tone that I want to have. 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love cast out fear. Now, if you read on, it says, fear involves punishment. So perfect love is removing all of the fear that something's going to drop down on me and really a gotcha. I often thought that perfect love meant that it had to be without flaw, that it had to be uh, an impossible standard for us to meet. But really, that's not it at all. The word perfect in the Greek language there is this word teleos. Teleos means to live up to its true Potential. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that he teaches and admonishes every man and woman in Christ so that he may present them perfect in Christ, so that he may present them teleos, so he may present them living up to their full potential in Christ. In other words, he's saying, Paul is in Colossians 1, that he wants people to live their potential. He wants people to live their teleos, live their purpose. Here, John is saying, don't only just live your purpose, which is an essential message, but also love your purpose. Love up to the full true potential that you have in you. When, you. when you have that full potential, max potential love, the scripture says perfect love casts out fear. It, it removes fear like that my friend was carrying that evening. Like fear of guilt and shame that so many people, that soul wound that so many of us hold on to because we don't know what what to do with it. It's revealing that other translations of this Bible verse say perfect love not only casts out fear, it expels fear, it banishes fear, it eliminates fear. If you read through the New Testament, it's the same word in the Greek language that's used to describe what Jesus did to demons. He didn't go around looking for demons, but when they came by, they had no choice but to, to, to run away from him. And perfect love actually 
expels that fear that guilt and shame create because it is so tender and embracing. In fact, Paul wrote about love in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, love keeps no records of wrongs. Love hopes all things. It endures all things. So you take the worst possible situations that people could do, it, like true, perfect, mature love walks through that. In fact, in another verse, Paul not only says love never fails, in Romans 6.1 he says where, where sin abounds, where wrongs occur, grace, he even uses a word in the Greek language that we don't, we don't actually have. He says grace superabounds would be the closest approximation. The thing is, you and I often do the opposite. We, we create distance to control people, even though we really crave connection. Like if they're carrying guilt and shame, like somehow we want them to carry a little bit of that guilt and shame because we want people to feel the weight of what they've done so that they know that they were wrong. And the ironic thing is the closer the relationship is, the more likely we are to exhibit these dysfunctions. But the cure for guilt and shame is that perfect love. It is to let the person confess and then to pronounce the forgiveness that this is over. In relationships, you can choose this. You can choose intimacy or control, as well as transparency or hiding, but you can't choose both. You can go for intimacy or control, and you can go for transparency or hiding, but you can't have both of those. She told me that what was happening with one of the boys was he was creating this false self. Like he was uh, truly the person that he was, but he was creating this false self, this projection to hide a lot of pain and shame that he was carrying around with him. As I thought about that, I was like, uh, yeah, I think I do exactly what he's been doing. Like I've got this me, the, the inner me, which I kind of call the little me, and I got this big projection. I've got this, um, another way to say it, this true self that's inside and this false self that's the projection of the outside. We, we often do this. Um, we have this true self and then we have this false self that becomes a mask that we wear, a false self that we use to seek applause, surface affirmation, attaboys, girls. It's, it's choosing the uh, affirmation of the many. We do this a lot on social media, the affirmation of the many there rather than the true intimacy and connection um, with the few or even the, the one. And it's, it's all a mask. Donald Miller in one of his books, Gary Close, he says, it's all theater. It's just a shadow. And shadows can't connect with people. Shadows can't heal Shadows can't carry the weight of your calling. Shadows can't do anything. You've got this true self inside of you. Uh, the counselor said to me that wants, that craves, that needs love and relationship and the true self inside of you that is capable of loving and living and doing so through life very well. And, and the goal is not to dump off the out, outer person. The goal is just to integrate to where the person that you project to the world and the person that you are are the same person, where your identity is secure, where you know your approval and your value, where you trust in the provision, where you're confident in your gifts, but you realize that what you do isn't who you are. Your gifts can still be used as a passion, as an overflow of everything that's been instilled into you by the kingdom of God. The trouble is it's impossible to walk in your true identity when you're hiding parts of who you are. And so often we hide 
when there's things to hide, when there's guilt and shame and other senses of condemnation. And what needs to happen is those things need to come into the light. And so when, as a friend does at a coffee shop in the evening, after the kids have gone to bed, they open the door, the skeleton just falls out and it's revealed to be nothing. It's revealed to be like the earth from the position of the moon, smoother than a cue ball. Not big sins and little sins, just sins and clutter and baggage to deal with. The cure for guilt and shame is forgiveness. And again, we confess to one another and we choose that intimacy and that connection and we confess to one another so that we can experience that forgiveness and be healed. Now, the first time I studied this and learned about this, I thought that sounds really weird. The fact that people could just pronounce forgiveness over other people and then walk forward together. But then I learned this from the New Testament. The Pharisees were always mad, furious at Jesus and correcting Jesus for his propensity to forgive other people. In fact, the bigger your issue was, the more comfortable you were in the presence of Jesus, it seems, based on the evidence that we have. And one day, he's there in Mark chapter 2, the friends of a paralytic man tear a hole in a roof and lower the paralytic down where Jesus is. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees instantly grumble. And Jesus then says this, that you may know, because they all questioned it, that I have power to forgive sins. Take up your mat, rise, and walk. His inference was, presumably, if I can heal, I can forgive. And I know you might think, well, that, that's Jesus. That's not us. Like, that's, he's the Son of God. He can do it, obviously. Like, that's why he came. I mean, for goodness sake, he's going to the cross. And on the cross, he says... Father, forgive them. But then there's this story post-resurrection where Jesus appears to the disciples. And this is the instance where He blows and breathes the Holy Spirit on them. And then He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Like In that moment, what Jesus had showed people is not only can God in heaven forgive sins, But Jesus himself, walking on the planet, can forgive sins. And not only can Jesus, one man walking the planet, forgive sins, but he can breathe life into all the sons and daughters of the King to where anyone can forgive sins. You see, freedom is found in the light. It's found not in hiding. It's found in realizing there is nothing else to hide. Freedom is experienced when it's carried forth with forgiveness. I want to uh, call your attention to it, the first pages of the Freedom March. It's the Freedom March manual. It's the workbook. I've got it. You can hear the pages kind of turning right there. Uh, it, it's actually, you know, an ebook that's available to you. And then here, here's the hardback. Uh, again, like a journal. Uh, the Freedom March Manifesto on page 17, I, I think, fits perfectly with what we've been discussing, particularly in these past two episodes. Here here it is. I am designed by God for a unique purpose, something He ordained for me to do before time began. He knew me in my mother's womb, and He set me aside from birth. I cannot rewrite my past, nor can I control every facet of the future, but I know God's purposes stand. And He doesn't take back the gifts or calling He originally placed upon me. I may grieve at times, but I do so with hope. I know the plans the Lord has for me are all immensely good, 
and I trust him to order my steps as I know he delights in me. I can choose to heal from the past, hope for the future, live whole in the present. I don't live under condemnation. I am chosen, holy, and beloved. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came to offer life overflowing. I choose to do everything I do as unto the Lord, trusting the author and finisher of my faith to complete the good work he began in me so that I might fulfill my days in the plans for which I was created. Though all things are not good, they can all work together for the good. Though everything isn't beautiful, he makes everything beautiful in its time. Though the enemy has stolen, he redeems, resurrects, and renews all things. He restores my soul. My spirit remains connected with his, and my life will abound as my soul prospers. I will continue working out what God is working in me, anticipating him to do as he promises something grander than anything I can ask, think, or imagine. As he said, we will do even greater works than he did. This is my Freedom March Manifesto. Again, that's from the beginning of the Freedom March manual book right there. Uh, One entry per day for 35 days, a video that releases in the app once a day for 35 days, a group uh, coaching session live once a week during that time, uh, access to all the replays. If I can assist you in that program, I would love for you to follow the link in the show notes, or if you know someone else, link that off to them. Or if maybe this isn't information that you need for you, but you would love to learn how to teach this and pass this on to empower others, I would invite you on that journey as well. I'm going to sign off. I'll be back again where we'll talk about soul wound type number three, which is soul ties. We'll do that in the next episode. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord be gracious and shine immense favor upon you. May he shine that light upon you and and may you see, sense, and feel that true freedom actually occurs not in the dark, but in the light when there is nothing else to hide because it has all, good, bad, ugly, all been completely cleansed already. Grace, peace. I'll see you soon.